0: Well, I want to invite you to get your Bibles open. If you do not have them open, please get them open right now to Matthew chapter 7. We're turning a page. We've got one final chapter to work through in our Sermon on the Mount series called The King and His Kingdom, Jesus and His Kingdom. And we're at the very beginning of chapter 7, and I'm about to read to you something that is extremely relevant what's going on in our nation, probably around the world, but I'm most acquainted with what's going on in our nation. You're seeing it particularly clearly on college campuses. In fact, it's in the news today from Berkeley. I'm about to read to you what's going on and a biblical mindset for it. But before we do that, let me remind you of something that's really, really critically important. So I need everybody to pay attention to this. You've got to get the focus of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to tell you two main things. There's a lot, but let me just tell you two quick main things about the Sermon on the Mount that I want to stick in your mind today. First of all, this is a discipleship manual. This is Jesus, the master rabbi, teaching his group of Talmadi, which was the name for disciples. A Talmud was a disciple, plural, Talmadi. And he is discipling them. And his aim is to help them to become just like himself. So this is the aim. So you ready? When I'm preaching over the next several minutes and you're interacting with the Word of God, Your aim, my aim, is that we move a little bit more closely to resembling Jesus. And it's going to be in an area that I think probably all of us struggle in. And we're going to learn the power that Jesus gives us to overcome this struggle. The second thing that I want to tell you about this sermon and particularly about the the master rabbi Jesus's style of preaching is that what Jesus did better than anybody ever has is that he would preach and then he would bring his disciples into an experience where they could apply it you see this over and over in the gospels Because Jesus knew that just stuffing our minds more full of knowledge leads typically to more pride. Knowledge that doesn't find traction in our mouths and our hands and our feet the way that we live is really inert It's really not doing anything. It's benign. It's not really impacting anybody around us You're not working in the kingdom the knowledge that you're learning that I'm learning in the Sermon on the Mount Must be applied so you're ready So here's my point and then we're going to jump right into this what you're going to hear in this message you must apply it even while I'm preaching it. So you've gotta put yourself right in the spotlight of the scriptures, let it illuminate. Yes, there's gonna be some things that probably it's gonna shine, that's not gonna look very good inside of you or inside of me. That's all right, let it, let it do its job. Let the word of God do its work. And when it illuminates things that are not pleasing to God, you plead for his grace. Jesus, I need help to become more like you. And if the Word of God shines and you see that there's been a lot of transformation in your area, you're right, in your heart, then your right response is, God, look at what you've done in me. You get all the credit. You get all the glory. Let's apply what we're going to learn immediately. Richard Mao, in his book, Uncommon Decency, wrote that a recent gathering of seminary professors, one one of them particularly mentioned that at his school, the most damaging charge, now listen to this, high school students, college students especially, you're going to identify with this. One of the most damaging charges a student can lodge against another is that the person is being judgmental. This almost always puts the mute button on the debate. As soon as somebody takes a stand on any important issue, someone else says that the person is being judgmental. That's it. That's the end of discussion. Everyone is intimidated. Let me quote to you Richard Mao's words. You can see it on the screen. Being civil does not mean that we cannot criticize what goes on around us. So Christians, regain your voice. However, listen to what he writes. Civility doesn't require us to prove approve of what other people believe and do. It is one thing to insist that other people have the right to express their basic convictions, but it's another thing to say that they are right in doing so. Now, this is deep. Come on, chew on this. This is profoundly important for what we're about to look at. Civility requires us to live by the first of these principles, but it does not commit us to the second formula to say that all beliefs and values deserve to be treated as if they're on par or on a par is to endorse relativism this is an absolutely damaging dominant theme in our modern culture it's a perspective that is incompatible with christian faith and practice Christian civility does not mean refusing to make judgments about what is good and true. For one thing, it really isn't possible to be completely non judgmental. Even telling someone else that she is being judgmental is a rather judgmental thing to do. So, relativism is that every truth or every statement or every belief has equal relevancy and equal foothold and equal uh, rights to the table. That's what our college atmosphere is right now. And if you take a stand for Christ, and by the way, can I just tell you something really quickly? It was actually worse in first century because there they died when they took a stand. Here we get rejected or maligned or ridiculed. But if you take a stand on an issue, you're likely going to hear even those who do not claim to be Christians tell you, judge not, that you'd be not judged. Well, here we go. What does that even mean? What does it mean to judge not? So I want you to really listen to this, and you're going to see, along with me, if we're judgmental people, and if we've been muted by our culture. The grammar of judge not. Now just think for a second. It means that the disciples of Christ need to stop doing something that they were already doing. There's absolutely no reason that Jesus would say, judge not, if nobody was judging. So there was judging going on. And he said to his disciples, and he's saying it to us stop judging, judge not. So, at least what it does for us, let's let's all be brave for a second. Let's all be courageous. Let's level the playing field. We all judge. We all tend to be judgmental. It's not like you get, at least nobody that I know of, to a place where you break through the ceiling to emerge into non judgmental error. We all judge. I'll give you a few ways that maybe you do what goes through your mind when you see a person sleeping downtown on a bench be brave or when you see someone overweight at a buffet restaurant stop staring at me like that you people i'm trying to lose see you're judging me or maybe i'm judging you thinking you're judging me i think i just finished this sermon What are your thoughts toward that parent whose little child is acting up in public? What's your thoughts toward their parenting? What are your private thoughts when you see that someone lives in an an incredibly expensive large home, or conversely, in a trailer? Or the Middle Eastern man with a turban on his head working at a store? What goes through your mind? Just be honest. Try to grab hold of those thoughts and identify them. What are your thoughts toward the people who collect your trash on the curb each week? So what I'm trying to do is do what Jesus began with the first two words, Judge not. This is already occurring in probably every single one of us. We need to identify that the problem is occurring and now apply the gospel. What does it really mean to judge? Let's define that word for a moment from the scriptures. It's a very broadly defined word. So let me give you a few of the sampling definitions for it. It means to separate, choose, distinguish. It has more than a dozen shades of meaning. I only gave you three of them. A lot of meanings. So listen student of the word if you look up in Strong's dictionary which every one of you have access to on the internet if you look up in Strong's dictionary and you double click on this word by the Strong's number you're going to get about 15 possible definitions not every one of them can be right So if you just start you know applying every one of those words to the, your definition of what it means biblically to judge, you're not going to arrive at the most precise answer. You've now got to examine the context. And the context tel- helps you understand which of those definitions is the meaning in mind of Jesus. So there's a lot of possible meanings. So context is crucial. And not just the verses immediately before these but those surrounding in in fact the entire council of the word of god is our context so let me give you a little bit ready so remember judge not now listen to this this is paul from corinthians for what have i to do with judging outsiders oh now listen this is hard one to hear is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge. So Paul says that Christians should judge Christians, but you should not judge non-believers. But Jesus says, judge not. So is he putting an absolute moratorium over the action of judging? Well, the, the rest of the scripture, which is inspired and without error, is showing you there's a balance to this. Context rules. Jesus said, do not judge by appearances in John 7, but judge with right judgment. So in Matthew 7, he says, judge not. In John chapter 7, he says, judge with right judgment. So you can't just take a blanket phrase, judge not, and then just close the book and tell everybody that you come in contact, you're never supposed to judge. You cannot hold that up biblically. He's commanding here, Jesus is, that we do not have a critical and condemning spirit where we believe we know the motives of other people and we decide whether they're deserving of our love and our mercy or not. Now, did you capture all of that? Because I just defined for you what Jesus means to judge not. Don't pretend you know the motives, the heart of a person, because you really don't. You can't with precision. The heart is deceptive and wicked, but I, the Lord, search the heart and the mind, Jeremiah 17, 10. So God knows the heart. We cannot know it with absolutely foolproof precision. So do not think you know it and then decide whether they're worthy of your love and your mercy. That's what it means to judge not. Do not have a critical and condemning spirit. Now I'm gonna just be really super honest with you and I'm gonna sweep myself into this. So pretend there's a mirror in front of me and I'm speaking to me as well as I'm speaking to you. I'm going to tell you, Christians tend to be some of the most judgmental people I've ever seen. That's not a good thing. We're to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. We're supposed to be distinct from the non-believer. We're supposed to be like Jesus. And this is something that needs to be killed in us. And listen, the only way that it gets killed in us is in the power of the gospel to transform us. You must be in the Word of God. And as the Word of God is in you, it begins to cleanse you, begins to change your mind, begins to put right desires in you so that you do what the Spirit of God wants you to do. See, this kind of judging that Jesus condemns is a hypercritical attitude and a person who thinks they know and that they themselves live the standard of what is right. So let me say this one more thing before we go to point number two. Here's what's happening when I'm judgmental. I have climbed up on top of a throne, donned my imaginary robe, held up my fictitious gavel, and looked at someone whom I think falls below my standard that I have for them and that I live out, and I pound the gavel guilty upon them. That is not your place, Christian. It is not mine. The throne is inhabited by one, and he is not me. Judgmentalism is horrible, and it's got to change. Why should we not have a judgmental attitude, point number two? Well, I'm going to give you now some very sobering truths to help you be confronted with the horror and the travesty of being a judgmental, hypercritical, throne-sitting, gavel-pounding Christian. Let me give you the first one. There's a higher court than ourselves. There's always a higher court than we inhabit. Jesus says very deeply, now you got to see this in verse 1, judge not, and then he gives a reason that you be not judged. Do you see that? Don't do something because there's a judgment for you if you do. See, when there's accountability, it usually motivates right behavior. It has the power to curb wrong behavior. And it's really easy to forget that at every single moment, we live in absolute full view of God. Every single moment. Now listen, the very thoughts that have been going through your mind, even while I started preaching, God is in full view of every one of them. Everything you did when you were just by yourself this last week, God never leaves you by yourself. He is there at every single moment. So he's always there. The Latin phrase is Coram Deo, before the face of God. You should remember that. You should write that down. Coram Deo, before God, before the face of God. We're always before his full, holy gaze. He sees everything we do. He knows everything we think. He hears every word we speak. But not only does he hear and see... He holds us accountable. Now, very sobering words of Jesus might put a bit of a tremulous heart in you when I read this, Matthew chapter 12. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account... For every careless word they speak. Now listen, look at me for a moment. Every careless word they speak. You know what Christians do? You know what I contend to do? I can reinterpret that as, boy, those people who reject Christ, they're going to give an account of every careless word they speak. That's not what it's saying. Tim Ackley will give an account. From every careless word I speak, you're going to give an account. One day before God, of every careless word you speak. You see, there's a judge higher than us, and he holds us accountable for everything. And one day, we're going to stand before him. We're going to meet him face to face. And listen, Christian brother and sister, that thought should dominate before you speak. That thought should dominate before you do something that you're going to do in total, what you think, privacy. That thought should dominate before you drive the way that some of us drive. Listen, there's an accountability that we've got. Believers and unbelievers. Now, some of you don't know this, so let me give you a little bit of a teaching of end times, eschatology. Believers and unbelievers, now listen, are both going to face judgment. We're both going to stand before the throne. Why do you pass judgment, Paul says in Romans, on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand, he's speaking to Christians, all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess the God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So you're going to, I'm going to give an account of myself to God. I'm going to stand before him and I will be held to account now Romans 8 very quickly says therefore there is no longer any condemnation for the Christian which thank God, thank Jesus because all that condemnation came upon the Son on the cross so that guilty sentence, that wrath of God will never come to you Christian but you will stand before the throne you will give an account to our God and for believers, that final judgment, and listen very carefully, I dare not anybody leave here without knowing what I'm going to tell you. So you got to really get your ears open. You must hear this. The final judgment, Christian, will not affect your salvation. You are secure in Christ. It will not affect your salvation. It will affect your rewards. And we will stand before God, and our works will be brought before him, and some of those works will result in lost reward. They will burn up. They will forever be gone, and other works done for the glory of God, in the way that Jesus says, they will withstand and endure and exist forever. They will be our rewards in heaven. So the very first reason that we ought not have a judgmental, critical attitude sitting on that throne is because believers will lose a great many rewards in eternity. So judge not, Jesus says, that you be not judged. But look at the second reason. We will be judged in the way that we judge. You know, the Greek historian Herodotus very prolific writer back in the day, wrote a book called Histories. And he tells a grim tale of a corrupt judge who was swayed by a bribe and gave a biased verdict. And the judge was Sisamnes, a royal judge installed into that position by the Persian king Cambyses. And when the king Cambyses discovered his judge's moral breach, he ordered him to be executed. Now listen to this. That's just the first part of the story. He had the skin flayed from his dead body, peeled from his dead body, and then preserved with a preserving agent, and then he ordered that the throne for the next one be covered with that very skin of the one that he executed. And then he installed the executed judge's son, to replace his father on the judge's seat with this statement. And I'm quoting, You will sit to administer justice upon the skin of your delinquent father. Should anyone incite you to do evil, remember his fate. Look down upon your father's skin, lest his fate befall you. That's a true story. For with the judgment, verse 2, you pronounce, you will be judged, Jesus says. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So a hypercritical, judgmental spirit is evidence there is in that heart a lack of grace. Jesus is speaking against his people, judging motives which only God can know. So this is what it is. A judgmental person is judging motives. They're judging the worth of another human being. And our judgment must be right. and must be gracious and fair judgment and done in a way, now listen, that we want others to judge us. You see, all of us, now, see if you agree with this in your own mind. All of us tend to judge others by one standard, and then we judge our own selves by another. That's just part of the fallen nature Of our flesh we are more we're far more gracious we are far more generous and understanding with ourselves usually unless you're dominated with shame unless you're dominated with shame this is true that you're far more gracious and generous and understanding with yourselves than other people you know, some rabbis in the day of Jesus taught that God had two measures that he used to judge people. He had a measure of justice and a measure of mercy. And can you imagine what it would be like if God were to judge us with justice? Now listen, you really need to be careful, and I need to be careful as well. When you are praying that God be just, You really need to understand the theological world that goes with that. If God were just with you or with me, we would, of all people, be suffering the most. Because if he gave us what we really deserved, we would be suffering under his wrath. We would have a future of eternity and torment in hell. Thank God that all of God's justice was poured out on Jesus' His son. And in his place, or in that place, all of God's mercy came to those who trust in Jesus. Listen, Christian brother and sister, all of the wrath of God for all of your sins, past, present, and And future has already been poured out on Jesus. He took it willingly as your scapegoat. He took it willingly as the lamb who was put to death. And in its place, God's mercy, God's favor, God's love is for us. Come on, you got to pound that into your mind. you got to remember that because when you fail for the 3,000th time in the same sin, it's really easy to finally get to the end. God, you must be tired of this. Well, I'm just going to move on to the rest of my life, and this is a blight on my record, and you will make me pay. That is not right theology. How thankful we are for his measure of mercy. And that thankfulness, listen Christian, it should move you, it should move me to use that exact same measure with other people. The very grace and mercy that God has given you in such abundance ought to flow through you to people who are in need of it. And nobody is ever in need of your mercy who hasn't wronged you. It's the very nature of mercy. But what is really taking place in a judgmental, hypercritical person's heart? Well, let me get to point number three and answer that. What are the problems in judgmental people? And Jesus is going to teach us this. Verse three, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Now, I'm going to give you, I think, three problems that are in our hearts when we are judgmental and critical. Now, listen, remember, go back to Richard Mao. Not when we're critical, discerning and distinguishing evil from good, right for wrong. It's when we're sitting on the throne, believing we know the motives and the worth of the person, and we pound our gavel upon them and give them the sentence. That is a hypercritical, judgmental heart. It should have no place in our lives. So how do we, what are the problems? What's the problem that's going on? Well, when you see a brother or a sister in sin, there are several things we don't know. Now, you ready? I'm going to give you three of them. There's a lot more, but let me give you three just to get us sobered before we understand the problems in a judgmental person's heart. You ready? Three things you don't know when you see a brother or a sister struggling in sin. You don't know how hard he or she has tried not to sin, You just don't know. And second, you don't know the power of the forces that has come against him or her. Some people experience horrific opposition of spiritual forces, more than we ever will. And thirdly, finally, we don't know what we would have done in the same exact circumstances. You don't know how hard they try not to sin. You don't know the measure, the degree of of force that has come against them. And you really don't know what you would do in that same circumstance. And that is very humbling, especially as we look at what this word speck means. A speck, now look at verse 3 again. A speck is a small piece of twig or more commonly chaff that came off the husk of, of grain. Now, if you've heard sermons from me in the past or one of the other pastors here, we've explained to you how they threshed grain. They were, all, they were always on a hilltop where the wind blew. If you go over to Israel today, other Middle Eastern countries, you're going to see the same thing still happening. You go on a hilltop where a breeze in the evening flows through. You take a fork and you throw the grain up in the air. The chaff blows away the dead outer part of grain while the heavier seed falls down to the ground. And sometimes that chaff often will get in your eye and it's an irritant. And though it's small compared to, look what he says, a log, it still bothers, it still affects the eye. The comparison Jesus gives is not between, now listen, this is critical because we usually take this the wrong way. It's not between a small sin and a big sin, but between a serious sin and a critically serious sin. So listen, get in your vocabulary. There is no such thing as a small sin because every single sin put Jesus on the cross. So you can't let your mind delude you because it can soften your warfare against it. There is no such thing as a little sin or a small sin. They're all heinous against the holy character of God. See the speck. Look what Jesus writes in verse 3. It's in the present tense in the Greek. And what we have is a hypercritical, judgmental person that continues to carp... And point out sins and faults in other people, whether it be their spouse, their children, their parents, their coworker, classmates, neighbors. Listen, it's just a way that you exist. You point out faults in others, you're critical, hypercritical, and it's ruling your life. But there are other problems and judgmental people. Here's the second one, or here's actually the first three. I just gave you the introduction. Here's the first. Judgmental people cannot see clearly. Spec, log, that's what's going on. They cannot see clearly. You know, I read of a husband, this is fun, who thought his wife was growing deaf. And I want you to hear this. No pun intended. That was actually funny. I am alone in my humor. I read of a husband who thought his wife was growing deaf and wanted to prove it to her. So, when her back was to him, he very quietly whispered, Can you hear me? Well, there was no response, so he moved a little closer. He asked again, Can you hear me now? And still no reply, so he quietly edged a little bit closer and whispered the same words, still no answer. So finally, he gets right behind the chair where she was sitting, puts his lips right behind her head, and says, Can you hear me now? And irritations all in her voice when she replies, For the fourth time, yes. (laughs) Now just right now admit, some of you can't grasp the profundity of that joke, okay? Just admit it, because that was really good. Maybe not. But Jesus had just said that hypercritical fault finders, look at what, listen, you've got to see his words. I'm quoting, do not notice. Do you see it in verse 3? They do not notice their own sins and faults. Are you, are you grasping this? Listen, let's just really get truly real with each other right now are you a critical person let me tell you one of your problems and one of my problems you can't see your sins nearly as clearly as you see everybody else's and you cannot see your problems and your faults with The precision that you can see everybody else's. This is the problem. There is a blindness in judgmental people. This is what Jesus is saying. If you get the log removed, look what he says, quote, then you will see clearly. There's a seeing problem in judgmental person. And the seeing problem is you're not seeing your own stuff nearly as well as you're seeing everybody else's. But then he goes to the second problem in judgmental people. They intrude before they're invited. Now this is particularly true of Christians... Or how can you say, verse 4, to your brother, let me take this speck out of your eye? How forward that is. You know, you've got to get really close to see a piece of chaff. Parents, when your children come to you and say, would you look in my eye? There's something in there. You've got to get, like, within inches. If you're going to get the speck out of somebody's eyes, you've got to intrude. You've got to get close. This is what Jesus is saying. And they feel obligated. They're the moral police. They've got to confront. They've got to make sure everybody else sees all the faults that you see. But they cannot see their own. You've got to get into a person's space to see it. There is such wisdom, friends. We have to learn this. There is such wisdom in learning to wait. When you see something, when you see that speck in somebody else, there is such wisdom. Wait and pray rather than invade another person's life with correction. Trusting God to make an awareness in that person if they have a problem. It doesn't mean you never go. It doesn't mean you never intrude. But you wait and pray before you do. James Dobson had a most marvelous saying that I heard when I was a young boy. Rules without relationship equals rebellion. And if you don't have a relationship with the person in whom you're seeing a speck and you intrude, what they're going to do is what you would do, recoil. And they're going to get away from you. You wait, you pray, you you build the relationship, and at the right time that God moves you, you move in and you say, can I please show you something that I'm seeing? And I want to invite you to do the same for me. See, Jesus is not saying to never point out another's faults, but don't make it your mission or your, your practice in life. But there's a third problem in judgmental people. And by the way, <laughs> I can't tell you enough. And I, let me just tell you I'm preaching to me. Months ago, There was a person in our church that I formed an opinion about, and I never had more than a morning greeting at church with that person. Never once. And I formed a negative opinion, and I wasn't really aware of it. I should have been, but I wasn't. Until I went to a conference that this person happened to be at as well, and I had a long conversation with the person. I came home and I, I got back to my hotel room and I immediately called my wife. And I said, honey, I got to tell you, I got to confess, I have been judgmental. I totally missed the depth in that person, the character in that person, the beauty that's in that person's heart. I totally got sidetracked on the outward part. And I never was able to see into the interior until that conversation. And it indelibly marked me once again, stop judging, stop being judgmental, Tim Ackley, and wait for God to show you the value of the person. See, there's a third problem. Judgmental people live a charade. Look at verse 5. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And that word hypocrite, if I were you, I would underline that in your Bible. I would put a little note in your margin and uh, write the word two-faced. And if you want to write a little bit more, what that word was was a professional Greek actor. And what they did in Greek drama in the first century is they didn't have multiple characters. They didn't have multiple actors and actresses. They usually had a single actor that would play multiple characters. And when it was time to switch roles, they took a mask on a stick and held it up to their face. And now the audience knew you're this character. And then they would put it down, pick up another one, and now you're this character. That's what the word hypocrite meant. It meant two-faced. It's the man whom James said looks in a mirror but doesn't really see himself very clearly. He walks away forgetting what he looks like. See, the hypocrite does not see him or herself clearly, lives a life of duplicity. You lose your temper, and inwardly you're going, well, I've got righteous anger. You might tell somebody else you're insufferable, but your mind's going, well, I'm just having a bad day. Or you might feel that somebody has a critical spirit, but you're justified in telling the truth. You gossip, I share prayer requests. This is what a hypocrite does. They remake their own role while they put the other one in the worst position and role possible. See, any of us can be a hypocrite where we sanctify our own sins and condemn those of other people. So Jesus says, first, take the log out of your own eye. Now, how do you do this? I wear contacts. I'm going to tell you the most painful experience I've ever had wearing contacts was after my dentist said, I really want you to buy a spin brush, one that's rechargeable you push a button and it spins and I want you to use that on your teeth so I thought, okay, that's good I have my contacts in one morning I'm getting ready to come to church and preach and I put the toothpaste on the spin brush but forgot to put it in my mouth before I hit the go button so all that toothpaste went flying at 7,200 RPM I don't really know how fast it goes right onto my eyeball and I have contacts and they were in So I've got to take the contacts out, but I had toothpaste all over my fingers. So I'm trying to get it. Now listen, I want everybody, just so so you can understand this, I want you to go home tonight and I want you to squeeze toothpaste in your eyeballs. (laughs) Who will actually do this? All right, who will not do this? Wow, I hope Jesus' disciples were better than these. Listen, you've got to get the speck out or the log out. And the only way to do that, and the way I had to do that when my eye was burning, I had to keep them open and get close to the mirror and get that contact out. What's your mirror? Now, you actually have a few of them, Christian. You have godly friends that are a mirror for you that you invite them to look. Do you see a log? But I'm going to tell you their answer might not be accurate because they might be a people pleaser or they might be hypercritical telling you there's a speck where there's really not. Your only foolproof, your only clear mirror is here. And this is exactly what will do it for you. The more you're in the word of God, it will show you your logs and it will move you in the power of the Holy Spirit to get it out of your life. This is the function, the role, the power of the word of God, the perfect mirror of God's word. Now listen, I'm going to tell you something that I hope you remember, you ready? The hypocrite lives an unexamined life. Did you hear that? I'm going to actually put a different word. A judgmental, critical person, I'm telling you, lives an unexamined life. They're too busy examining everybody else's life usually the people closest to them. But God's word will move you and it will move me to examine my own. David teaches this as well as anybody in Psalm 51 where only after his confession and his repentance in verse 13 he prays, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Listen, if you want to help people get the logs and the specks out of their eyes, you must first let the word of God get yours out of your eyes. Get the logs out of your own life. And you've got to have a regular time where you invite God to examine yourself, to search you, show you what isn't pleasing to him. And and I would recommend that this be a daily habit of your devotions. And this is the aim of Jesus, that we build up and not tear down our brother and sister. Look what he writes in verse 6. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and, and turn to attack you now verse 6 admittedly feels completely out of place in this passage what on earth is jesus saying it's important that we build each other up so now listen so that we can distinguish good from evil to discern the counterfeit from the real in the jewish sacrificial system now, now let me let me teach you this for a minute An animal was offered to the Lord. And part of it was given to the priests. Part was taken home for the family's food. And part was left on the altar for God. So part of it was given to God. Part was to the priests. This is how they they were fed. And part of that animal carcass was given to you. So you can go home and eat it as a family. That one part though that was given to God. Now listen to this. It was declared holy which is a really awesome word with a few shades of meaning, but one of them, which is beautifully defined, says to set apart. So it's set apart exclusively for God. And it would have been unthinkable to take that which was set apart to God and to throw it to the dogs. To take it off the altar before it could be burned up and given to the Lord and, and just thrown to the Mangy mutts that were always running around Israel. The Jews called them goy. See, a pearl was a metaphor. A pearl, look at the text, was a metaphor for the gospel message. And there are people so antagonistic and so perverse that they want to destroy God's word. They hate the gospel. And the analogy that Jesus gives, pigs cannot eat these pearls, so they spit them out, they trample them into the mud, and then they turn around and they attack the one bearing the gospel, the very good news of Jesus Christ. Now, the point of what Jesus is meaning in both of these examples is that discernment and judging is necessary and we must help each other by seeing clearly to help each other grow in the faith. Hebrews five fourteen, 14, But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. See, so Jesus is telling us in this passage that you must not have a hypercritical, judgmental attitude, but to learn to judge fairly aware that we are held accountable before God. But when we come to someone who is so antagonistic to the gospel then it is not the argument that will win them to Christ. It's a life that lives the truths of the gospel, a life of grace and trust and and love, which refuses to be hypercritical, but lives pure and bright like Christ. So really the message is, church, stop being hypercritical. Stop being judgmental. And instead, regularly confess, regularly consent, uh, repent of your own sins. big, seriously critical, and critical so that we can see clearly to help others, even if it means we're only to be an example. Now, let me sum this up before we close. It is so imperative. Listen, this is the most important thing I think I'm going to tell you. It is it's, it's absolutely critical. Now, everybody look at me for a moment. I'm almost done. It is absolutely critical that you and I get the logs out of our eyes. And when you're critically condemning of other people, you're blind to yourself. You're seeing their sins a lot more than you're seeing yours. And if you're going to instead help them grow up in Christ so that they can distinguish between right and wrong, good and evil, then you must get the logs out. So you come back to the mirror of God's word. You come back to godly, accountable relationships, which you invite that person or persons to speak into your life. Let them get close. Do you see a speck in my life? And if you do, put your finger on it, show it to me, and help me get it out. Then I will teach transgressors the error of their ways, and I will help people distinguish good from evil. This is critical that the church learns to do this. Amen? So let's pray and ask his help to do it.